So Spotify has been in the uh, news a fair bit recently. So you've had uh, you've had Luca Bloom two weeks ago having a chat around why he's not putting his album on there. You've had um, the CEO this week come out and say that artists can't expect to run on the old model of having four albums a week. And this got me onto one of my favorite things, which I think has happened twice. It's definitely once a year since I was a teenager, and it's one of my favorite things. And I don't think I've even ever told you about it. This is so. This is the tangent. We have a chat within this episode. We mentioned Spotify. The stuff happens with old mate CEO during the week. And two weeks ago, Taylor Swift released her album Folklore. Now, Dom, this is the thing. I am an absolute glutton when it comes to female pop stars. At least once a year, I pick one. It's not like I listen to all female pop stars. I I end up falling for one, and I fall into their album, and I fall into that love story in a ridiculous way. So, mm-hmm. like, this folklore one, it starts off with a tune called The One. It, it's, it's gorgeous. And then it goes into this other one, which is called Cardigan. For me, that was... It, the job was sealed. I was in that world. And then that made me reflect on... I'm like, man, I do this. I... I I do this. I seem to grab a female pop star a year and just fall in love with their male protagonists. Fall in love with their male protagonists? Uh-huh. Right. So what I mean by that is... So you inhabit the female persona? Mm-hmm. Or it... Yeah, completely. Right. And I, I let it just... Fl- I just float through these albums and I feel the warm and fuzzies from the female perspective. And it's happened with Katy Perry. It's happened with Kate Nash. It's happened with... Funnily enough, this is what it's got me thinking too. It's happened with me with McCalmont and Butler. It's happened with me with Erasure. So two mm-hmm. predominantly, um, not predominantly, two gay uh, artists. But there's something about the way that I enjoy the way um, uh, romance is summed up from that perspective. Mm-hmm. It's gorgeous. It's mm-hmm. so lovely. I, I dance differently when I listen to it. I make different body moves I just I get so into it it takes me away and I love it so I'm wondering I uh, have been watching I, I think if I was to say that there was a similar thing it would be uh, some of the NPR Tiny Desk concerts the last the last two that I've become fixated on partly because um, Elisa has been listening to them a lot and then I started listening to them one was um, uh, Natalia Lafourcade, the mm-hmm. um, Mexican singer-songwriter. There's a NPR Tiny Desk of her, which is phenomenal. And the musicians in it are great. And But there's something about her and the way she's singing and the way she's expressing herself that's just very beautiful. And then Alicia Keys, right, mm. which was quite recent. I think it was maybe a couple of months ago, <laughs> beginning of lockdown. And her, when she sings a song in it about um, about not being, being in a relationship where she's not able to be herself, right? Yeah. And, and I, I find it, Amazing! I was like, Alicia Keys even finds herself in a relationship where she's not able to. Be- Who did that to you, Alicia? Yeah. Who was that arsehole? It's funny. It's the tiny desk. Taylor Swift did a tiny desk during lockdown too, and it was that one that gave me my kind of heads up that a. I'd, I'd love to find a name for this. One of these holes, but it's a beautiful hole. It's like a gorgeous swimming hole of romance. I knew that was coming. So when I saw mm-hmm. that album come up, I was like, "Oh, why watch that tiny desk?" So is it romance? Is it? Is it romance? Oh, and it's not just romance. It's like I adore the inter-friendship inter- relationships in the albums. Again, female perspective. It allows me to enter that. It's a you very, mean male-female friendships? No, no, no. Female-female. Oh, sorry. Okay. Very yeah. complicated. 
Mm. <laughs> like, I, I'm, I would identify as cis man, mm-hmm. but these albums are such a fun escape. I love them. Mm-hmm. It's so much fun. Like, I know as soon as we're finished this recording, you're going to leave. I'm going to put on Fox. <laughs> That's happening. I'm sorry for keeping. And you know what it is too. Like this, with Lana Del Rey's last album, like going to bed at night. That's what I put on, and you're just taken off into this. Like that's a that's an album that's a, that's it's quite it's kind of harsh. It's very sweet, but it's quite harsh in tonality. What she's talking about, very bad breakup. And you just I plug in headphones and I lie down and I'm just I'm taken off into this other relationship that you get to feel the turmoil from her perspective. Lovely. I don't know. I don't, oh, yes. Sorry. So that's going back to Spotify. So like, there's oh. a whole load of stuff we could probably talk about Spotify. We get into it a little bit at the end. But essentially, let's say the the line is drawn at the moment that Spotify is mostly not great for artists. And we do talk about that a little bit then in the interview. What I want to mention up front is if you if you do want to support the artist, particularly Teresa in this instance, go to teresaogrady.bandcamp.com. As Teresa says in this episode, she has some physical CDs left. There's there's digital copies there. That is the way to support the artist at the moment. If you want them, your money to go to the artist, buy their, buy their stuff. That's and that applies to everyone who's been in any of these episodes, whether it's uh, Teresa or Austral or Dahi Gormley or anyone else. So, yeah. so sh- as always, uh, every episode we put this kind of stuff in the show notes. So whatever app you're on, after you hit subscribe and give us a five-star review, scroll a bit further and you'll see a link to wherever is the best place to support them yeah and so today's guest Teresa O'Grady banjo player as you'll hear pretty lackluster guitar player (laughs) she picks up a mandolin now and again (laughs) just Uh, great crack phenomenal uh, phenomenal multi-instrumentalist and a teacher and uh, yeah just a great musician great crack and we actually interviewed her brother Kieran you may remember from an, an, an earlier episode so it was really great to have Teresa's perspective on um, growing up and learning the music in this house full of house full of um, fledgling mu- musicians in Luton, which just is such a beautiful picture of beautiful. Uh, of you know, I don't know how you get music into a kid's soul, you know. So, yeah, should we just go? Let's Here is it. the phenomenal Teresa O'Grady. Enjoy. <laughs> Thank you. 
Therese O'Grady, thank you so much for being on the Blarney Pilgrims. How are you going? I'm doing good, guys. Doing good. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me. Ah, oh, pleasure. So, what what did you just play there for us? Okay, that was uh, that's a tune called the Milky Way, uh, which is a composition of Vincent Broderick. Vincent Broderick is a, a flute player that was Galway originated and. Uh, would have would have spent a large amount of his life then in in Meath in County Meath. So, um, I, to be honest, I've no connection really with either place <laughs> or him. I just love the tune. <laughs> Sometimes it is just about the music, isn't it? <laughs> it you can get you can wax is. philosophical, and then you just go, you know what? It's got a great melody. That's it. Yeah. Are you able to um, just pick apart what it is that you like about it when you have a tune like that? I, th- I think it's um, like that that tune, like, I, I would teach it quite a lot. It's, it's not a particularly difficult tune and it's kind of put together a little bit like a jigsaw. So uh, there's probably about eight phrases in the whole tune in both parts, but they're just put together in different ways, if you know what I mean, in different orders. So like the second part is actually not that different to the first part. It's just put together in a different way, which I kind of like the cleverness of that kind of thing. Something happens when it when a tune like I'm I'm just just learning the fiddle at the minute, and I only have not even a handful, half a handful of tunes, and I'm trying to think of the names of one or two that do that, but they feel different. It, you can almost feel how clever they are as you play them because. Everything is so close. Those little patterns, because they loop back in on themselves, there's a smartness in it. And I don't know, for me, when I'm playing them, I feel like, I don't know, it kind of answer, it answers itself multiple times within the one tune, if that makes sense. But yes, that's what it feels yeah. like for me. And I think as well, when you when you kind of show this as a, as a, as a pattern or a method of, of teaching, um, it's it's a revelation in some ways because you see people kind of looking looking at that and going oh yeah <laughs> yeah you know, well, definitely it as a student it doesn't hear the way it's or it doesn't sound the way it looks necessarily until they can see the the patterns of notes and as yeah. a student it's lovely to have that too because when you've got a pattern that repeats early on early on in a tune and and you actually work it out before you're told the next bit that's a as a as a beginner, that, that's a lovely little feeling because you've you've just rewarded yourself, Absolutely. right? You know, on, on, the, on the process, so that reward then drives you on. Yeah, it's a real it's a real kind of instant kick of confidence. Like it just so you know, it, it helps. It really helps. <laughs> you could you could um, probably um, correct me if I'm wrong about this, but um, so I've been relearning a, a whole lot of tunes that I I sort of know. I've known for years in a really half-arsed fashion, and one of them was the Bucks of Oran Moor. And the Bucks <laughs> of Oran Moor seems to me to conform exactly to what you're talking about because I've been amazed by the repetitive nature of the patterns that are just slightly reversed from section to section. And yeah, and it kind of have I got? I'm not imagining that, right? I mean, no, almost you're not. to the point Absolutely of like, not. this is quite tedious. <laughs> yeah, like the 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 end, like the. I think four out of five parts of the box of Oromore, the ending, the last phrase in each of those parts is actually the same. So, yeah, yeah. like that in itself, like it's a it's a great um, it's a great tool to use 
in any in any environment like if you're if you're teaching because you know when someone's faced with a page of notes there's nearly that kind of deflated feeling or or, or you're, when they're faced either with a recording and they're like, oh no, Jesus, there's so much to learn in this. And then when you start showing them, well, that's actually the same as that and that and that. And they're like, so that, that means I've only got one line to learn. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> so it, it, it's great in a way, you know, when they, when, when, especially kids, when they, when they can see uh, the easy, the easy path. I, I would have been one of them kids. <laughs> and I, I was going to say, that sounds like me, like I'm one of those kids. What I would like to know, what what's your take from a teacher's perspective when you're learning at at the beginning of your your learning journey and you start learning patterns because that's that's mm. really what resonates with me like oh if i find the pattern then i'm away but what i find is it sometimes it often feels like i've i've learned it from tab because i've learned it from pattern so i'm actually playing patterns rather than playing the music does that make sense yeah yes it does yeah and i think especially like especially well maybe it's easier to to do that kind of thing as well or to to hear and see the patterns on well especially say the banjo or the fiddle because I think an awful lot of things as well within the tune and the pattern works a lot in triangles and I was trying to explain <laughs> I was trying to explain this um well I would always kind explain of explain it to us yeah <laughs> so like when you're you know when you're when you're looking at a, a note or a, a a tune that is in the key of of g um your triangular pattern if you like of your notes is the, it's usually g b high d or any combination of g's b's and d's if you like okay that's your that's your very very basic format and i would always say that you know that that's your triangle and always think about things in a triangular pattern, if you like, so that if you're if you're any bit lost at all in the tune that you're trying to maybe learn by ear, um, generally I would say 80% of the time, what you what the note that you may be missing is somewhere within that triangle, and that's kind of how sure. I would always look at it. Trace, that is brilliant because. I've said this to, to Dom and I've said it to one or two other people that uh, like the, the banjo, five string banjo for me has always been work, always been mm. work. And I picked up the fiddle and completely different tuning, but already things started to fall, fall out of it. And I, like that was very strange for me because I always perceived it to be a very difficult instrument, but things started to fall out of it. And the reason that I had worked it out in my head was like, it was that triangle, like literally a little triangle you were making with yeah. your, your three main fingers. And yeah. that's what I was using. So when you were saying that, I was like, oh, my God, this is right on the money. <laughs> so thank you. This is cracking. You're welcome. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks Enter for today. Over. <laughs> is that it then? Okay, thanks, guys. Yeah. <laughs> well, but uh, the, the thing that comes to me from this as well, you know, when I was thinking about um, the Bucks of Iron Moore and then thinking about tunes more generally and about those repeating patterns was then that, how essentially simple Irish music is and then how within that simplicity there's just this endless space for invention. Yes, yeah, yeah. And that and that is I think that is what makes it such an interesting um type, if you like, of music. You know, you're not you're not sticking rigidly to the script if you like you can go off script you can 
you know, invent your own variations, um, and especially in them phrases of the tunes that repeat themselves. Like if, if you just played the phrases of the tune that repeat themselves and don't stray outside of the, the pattern of notes, it can, it's not that it becomes boring, it, it's just that I think in your own head, you're always trying to invent another pathway. And that's where it makes the music so individual and then it also makes the person's interpretation of the music so individual. Yeah, that completely resonates with me from a professional level. So I work in advertising and I'm a creative in advertising. And the tighter a brief is that I would get. So if, if, if it has parameters, very strict parameters all around it, you always come up with more creative outputs because the parameters are very defined. And when something is defined and you, you then become creative because if you've that that's what that's that's the goal at the end you yes. you know you actually it highlights what creativity is because it it delivers the it delivers the idea in a in a great in interesting way so it's it's really the same with music it is yeah and I, and i think that that's that's the appealing part of of the trad you know the 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 music and the the kind of traditional irish music environment that there's really not an awful lot of wrongs if you know what I mean like it's mm -hmm. quite accepted that people will have their own interpretation of a tune or a certain way of playing a tune and and that that's that's how that's how music travels that that's it like that's essentially what it is and and you you may hear a version of a tune and you may hear another version of a tune <laughs> the same tune and then you can stick them two bits together and then that becomes your way of playing it so it's all very i suppose it has its own signature you've clearly never heard me play <laughs> <laughs> thankfully <laughs> i just had flashing you, through my do head do you have there. your oh, own was... signature <laughs> Oh, oh, do I ever. Oh, don't worry, you're not alone in this world. We all do. <laughs> um, have, you, have you always then um, uh, gravitated towards teaching? I mean, no, have you always no, felt a draw no. towards it? Uh, yeah, I probably... I, I, like, I was, I was never a teacher to begin with, you know. That it was... It was uh, I, I kind of feel like my... My music life and my my professional life were kind of on parallel universes, if you like, um, up until about five years ago when they converged. And now my job, if you like, is my music in in yeah in in every way, you know, because now I am that's my that's my full time job when it comes back full time <laughs> from from lockdown um that's that's my full time job it, it's teaching music really um that, you know that, that's it what were you that's doing what do. before what was the other parallel line oh uh, <laughs> how long do you have length <laughs> <laughs> ah, an hour and a half <laughs> yeah i might i might get it covered in an hour and a half maybe <laughs> no i i would have actually um I left, left school, I actually left school when I was 16 and um, got a job in, so I, I went, I was born and brought up and lived in Luton um, as a kid and left school when I was 16 and got a job straight away in Barclays Bank. 
So I was, um, you know, retail high street banking um, for a couple of years and then took a notion, an absolute notion that I was going to move to Dublin. Um, so I did, I moved to Dublin and basically jo joined another high street bank over there, Bank of Ireland, and did, so it stayed there for about a year. And, and it wasn't, I don't think it was really the, the music element of things that made me go to Dublin entirely. Like, obviously it had, it, it had its, its draw, but I, I just wanted to live in Ireland. I just really wanted to kind of experience it all firsthand. So I went over for about a year and then very quickly figured out that unless you had qualifications or experience, you could only really work in retail banking and you wouldn't be able to get into kind of investment banking or, or merchant banking. So um, I thought to myself, right, what's the easiest way to do this? Am I going to go to college? No, <laughs> definitely not. <laughs> so I decided I'd go back to London and I'd get the experience needed in in banking, um, in, in the investment side of things. So... Um, I got a job in Bearings Bank. I don't know if you know. Oh, I remember Bearings. Yeah, I remember Bearings Bank. Yeah. Yeah. So, I got a, I got a job with Bearings. Um, this would have been a, like kind of mid, oh, I'd say about 1994. So I had gone to Dublin, say mid 93, came back in 94, and blagged my way into a job in Bearings Bank and. Um, Oh man, that was just probably the most eventful year or two of my life. So I was about 21 at the time. Um, I had also actually gone off and done the the Celtis tour that year. I did the, the tour of Britain that year with Celtis. So that was great crack, brilliant, you know. Um, came back and the, the day that I came back from the tour, uh, I got, got a call from my boss at home. I was, I was still at home with mum and dad in Luton. And uh, basically the phone call was, can you get yourself on the first train in the morning, buy a newspaper and don't come in the front door of the bank? <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> what do you mean? And they were like, just, just buy a paper, get the early train. Wow. Uh, oh, and, and, and bring, a, bring a, a couple of suits with you because you might have to stay I was like, what in the name of God is going on? So I, to be honest with you, I literally did exactly what I was told, bought the paper, and sure, it was all over the paper about Bearings Bank going bust and all the rest of it. So uh, okay, I so walked in. Teresa, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop you there because I want to ask you more about that. But I, okay. I want to I have, have a good run at it. Yeah. <laughs> so so could, could we, I know this is a very abrupt stop but could we have a tune and then we'll you can yes you can okay. uh, what will i do let me see actually i might stick I might stick with the banjo i have a couple of other um instruments there as well i'll do something on them maybe as well um let's see i'll do um i'll do a couple of reels for you okay um this one's called the Starry Lane to Monaghan. It's actually an Ed Reavy composition. And uh, I'll try maybe Johnny Watt Henry's then afterwards. Okay, let's run. 
Are you there, Trees? Yeah, I'm here. Teresa, oh. oh, you're there. Sorry, I wasn't. Sorry, <laughs> it was the both of us waiting for each other. <laughs> Sorry, I think we'll leave that in. <laughs> that that stays <laughs> in the cut. <laughs> you can shorten the pause a bit. <laughs> All right, so I know oh, we're going to get into it, but I would love to just. Well, I'm I'm the idiot in this scenario, and not only was I ignoring Irish music when I was. A young lad, I was ignoring financial news. So, what what year did that happen? Was it like late nineties? It was. It was. Um, that that happened early nineteen ninety five. Um, well, I was a rat bag was, fifteen year old, so I know nothing about it. Was what? Was, can you? I was, I was, of, I was a. I was a rat bag twenty one year old. So. <laughs> so was that was that Nick Leeson? Yes. Yes. What it happened? Was, yeah. Poor Nick. Um, I say Nick now was maybe the fall guy, I think, for for possibly the hierarchy of of bearings at the time. But um, basically, he was based. Could, could you give Singapore. me a quick? Yeah, I will. Yeah, he was he was based in Singapore, and he would have been doing a lot of you know futures trading with margins and stuff at the time. I'm not going to go into the ins and outs of that now because that yeah. will take the whole show. But anyway, um, what's but future trading? Futures <laughs> I'm joking, is. I'm joking. I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> Futures is like, do you know? Do you remember watching that film, Back to the Future? Yeah, so it ha- yeah that's a good it, documentary. You get, there, you get there before it happens. <laughs> so it's that kind of yeah, a thing. All right. But uh, basically, you're, you're it's it's a it's a betting game, really, more than anything. And um, I think Nick just bet too much money on on one end of a future, and the it didn't go according to plan. I, th- I think actually the whole thing. Oh, I don't know. Did it? coincide with the Kobe earthquake or something it was it was a, it was a clatter of events and basically he went all out and tried to, to trade his way out of it and that just got worse so uh, London was the head office we were we were the we were kind of the back office if you like of what was going on and so you had all of these trades out in the market and all of a sudden the bank had no money to pay them so it was it was mental. I remember, I remember going in on that Monday morning and it was the nearest thing I'd ever seen to a toilet roll advert. There was just reams and reams of paper all over the office floor and people trying to reconcile positions. And, oh, it was it, it was madness. Absolutely. And it was the first working time. Overtime. It was the first time it happened to, to a major investment house as well. So... Um, yeah, it was. It so was you just must have been. Were you history. bricking it? Like if if you're t- you're 21 and what? That's a that's a huge scene to be walking in on. Like that's earth shattering. Yeah. No, I was still a bit hungover from the British <laughs> tour. I think. To be <laughs> right. <laughs> like I I just come back from two weeks of playing music everywhere, so it was like two complete parallel worlds, literally. You know. Um, I mean, yeah, I mean, everyone, you know, when, when the reality set in, you know, everyone was everyone was really looking for a new job. The, the Bearings Bank got bought out in the end and they still exist as ING Bearings in London. But, yeah, it was, it was just, it was the strangest time. It really, really was. But part of history then as well, you know, so um, it was what exciting. What happens? <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, like, do you keep going in day after day then? You yeah, know, yeah. And, I mean, like, but, yeah, but like I just... stayed. Yeah, I stayed with that company until Christmas, um, and and then 
you know, I, I moved on. But like, I mean, they, they still they still exist. They got bought out by another investment house um, from the Netherlands. I think ING was a um, was a Dutch bank. And um, yeah, I mean, they, that's it. That's that's what they do. So the vast majority of people, you know, kept the jobs. It, it it was it was just really really strange times. You know, like the the ING would have bought Bearings Bank and the debt, if you like, and and then would have just carried on trading as a as another company, just a takeover, really, more than anything. You know. Um, what happened to Nick Leeson? Nick ended up in prison, I think, for a while. And then um, he, I think he was in prison in Singapore for, you know, <laughs> unauthorised trading. <laughs> um, and then he ended up becoming the, I think he ended up becoming like the president of Galway United Football Club. <laughs> right. <That's, Good> <laughs> Seems like yeah. a natural progression. Yeah, an absolute natural progression. Yeah, but... Um, yeah, he did do time for for a while, for a few years, um, but it was just, it was strange now, strange to say the least, you know, it really, really was, but um, yeah, so... So how I, long were you there for? for I was there a year and a half altogether, um, and, and like at the time, you know, that, that kind of time of the 90s in, in London, like, you know, it was, the jobs were jobs were 10 to the penny like I mean you could move to a different bank every year if you really wanted to there was loads of jobs in in the banking sector in London at the time you know so like I moved on from there to another another company Morgan Grenfell and from there then they actually had a an office in Dublin and that was my stepping stone back to to Dublin yeah I'm like I made I made sure when I moved from bearings that I, I went to another bank that had an office in Dublin. <laughs> that was my criteria to move, was to make sure that they already had an outfit in the financial centre. And that, that was where I went. What what drew you to banking? Like, were, you know, so as a, as a teenager, as a, you know, 12 to 18 year old, like what, what's drawing you towards that? Oh, uh, it, I, it, the, there was there was no real draw if you like um like i didn't sit at my desk in school at 12 and go i want to work in a bank i wanted a job um i i definitely wasn't going to carry on studying and i want i just wanted a well-paid job really that was the that was the crux of it um and i i don't know i, I really don't know i cannot answer that you know, it was, I suppose there was a few of my mates from school, you know, a lot of, a lot of us would have gone from school into, into banking, you know, that, that, that was, that was kind of a, a natural thing because positions were readily available and, you know, provided you had good enough GCSEs to, to get in there, you know, that, that was, that was just a natural progression to, into a job. I didn't plan on staying yeah in any financial sector for as long as I did, um, there was, like, if you like, there was no big master plan, only that I was actually quite good at what I did in any of the banks that I worked in. Um, eventually, the area I ended up in, in, in Dublin, would have been in compliance. So it, I, I, I suppose I just, and I enjoyed it. Like I actually really enjoyed enjoyed the work. I really did. It was quite quite challenging. Um, 
a lot of it now, especially in the compliance areas, because in then kind of like late 90s, early 2000s, obviously after Nick Leeson and all of that, like compliance was compliance was the buzzword. That was it. Every bank had to have a compliance department, if you like, you know, probably not what they would have had or would have been that, you know, even aware of before the whole Nick Leeson event happened. That's mm. because of compliance that nothing ever happened with the banks ever again. <laughs> well, I'm, I would say nothing. Oh, <laughs> hang on. Yeah. yeah. Uh, oh, I think there's, I, I think there's always going to be, there's always going to be yeah. trouble, you know, with banks, finance, anything yeah. like that. But, yeah, but um, yeah, that was that was my chosen career path, if you like, by accident, completely on purpose, <laughs> that kind of thing. So when you're in that sort of teenage years, then are you, are you presumably you're still playing music as well? What how, yeah. what form does the music take? Like, what's your music life like? Um, it was actually God. It was it was great. I have to say, like say those <laughs> that mid nineties in London. Well, even even like early nineties. So ninety right through. Um, probably until when I went to Dublin, like there was so much music in London. Like I, I really think um, I uh, just just probably hit it at the best time. Like we were growing up in, like we were all, I have two brothers as well that both play music. And so the three of us were born and brought up in Luton, but like obviously London was so easily accessible to us. Um, and that kind of like 1991, 92, there was, there was this one one place in particular that would stick out is um, there was a pub called the Coach and Horses in Finsbury Park, I think, and the the anchor session there every Sunday morning was Brian Rooney and Paddy Hayes, and then there would just be oh, like anybody could be there, and then there was that really amazing cohort of London musicians as well. So like you had. Noel Welton, who was just a phenomenal banjo player, his his wife, they weren't married at the time, but his now wife, Sharon Welton, uh, or sorry, Sharon Burke, she, Welton was a married name, um, Karen Ryan, Teresa Heaney, Elaine Conwell, Gary Connolly, uh, just all these, and, and like they, they're all still playing music as well, like th these weren't these weren't kids like ourselves that maybe fell away from it then after a while or, you know, life took over. Like, it it was great. Like, we were so, so lucky to be completely stuck in the middle of it, really, you know, for want of a better way of looking at it. Like, you had so much access to amazing music and, and great people. Did you, did you know at the time how good you had it? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, you definitely did. not no uh, but now it's not that you it's not that you took it at all for granted you didn't like I mean it, I suppose you just you just lived it really and and it's only now when you look back at it that you really can appreciate how lucky you really were like to be sitting down playing music with 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 them people you know were they were they welcoming to to youngsters yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Like I, I have to say, like if you, Jesus, if you think about it, like so, like I was probably in the nineties. Like I was sixteen. James, my older brother, was seventeen. Like my Kieran, my younger brother, like was only twelve or thirteen, and like he was, 
So if you think about it now, you're like, oh my God, would you do that to it? Would you do that to your kids now? Bring them into um, a pub every Sunday morning to play music for the whole day. Like, I mean, we would have been there from, you'd have gone down there maybe at half 11 or 12 o'clock and you would have played music in there all day until five or six o'clock in the evening. Um, and they were always, soon as they'd see you coming in the door, like, Paddy Hayes would have a great big smile on his face and he'd always ask you to, you know, to start a few tunes on your own, you know, as a family together, that kind of thing. Yeah, like they, they were, they were just, they were great really when you, you know, there was no, um, there really wasn't um, a feeling of a, a hierarchy or different levels of a session or, you know, er, everyone, everyone started a tune, everyone joined in, everyone played together. It was great, really. And, and in all this time, you're you're sitting there on a Sunday for, you know, four or five hours. Um, are, you, are your mum and dad there too? Yeah, mum and dad used to come down as well. So um, they, would, they would have brought us before um, James would have been learning to drive at the time. So... But yeah, mum and dad used to come down as well and they'd just be kind of sat in the background listening to it. And and mum and dad never drank. Like they never, you know, they, they, they'd be nursing maybe a, a ginger ale or a, a club lemon or something. Like they, they weren't drinkers. Um, so they, they were just really there for the, for the love of the music more than anything. And then it used to be really funny then, like when James learned how to drive then, obviously James was the pilot, so he'd bring me down to the coach and horses we'd leave Kieran to go down with mom and dad and meet them down there <laughs> so that right. like mom could go home then whenever they wanted to and have the dinner ready and she'd be like now your dinner will be ready in an hour so make sure now you're back but sure myself and James could waddle back in the door at you know eight or nine o'clock that night if the session was really good so yeah they it was it was so funny really when you think of it that way and was was it a was it a big Drinking culture? Um, yeah, I suppose it was. I mean, yeah, like, I mean, the, the musicians that were overage, yeah, they were, they were drinking. Um, and that was, that, but that was, that was their social lives, you know? Um, so like going I... for a few tunes and a few pint, a few pints on a Sunday morning, that, that was it. That was what they did. So yeah, there was a big enough drinking culture in it. Um, uh, that, I suppose that would, go hand in hand yeah it just probably goes hand in hand with the music and even now do you know you'd go for a few tunes go for a few pints you know yes yeah, so um sorry Teresa, there was a miscommunication in eyes we, we have a we have a, an internal look and a symbol for when we're going to have a tune and both of us were waiting okay. for the other person to say tune <laughs> so sorry about that um, <laughs> I, I I get so, the feeling there could be Laurel and Hardy moments there between the other. <laughs> no, uh, it's more uh, Father Ted. We just haven't figured out who's ah, Ted and okay. who's Ted yet. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Work in progress. <laughs> oh, very good, very good. <laughs> um, yeah, I can do another tune, no problem. I might actually do um, I might do a tune on this. I've got a I've got two two beautiful instruments that I actually had made um, in Australia by, he'd be a guitar maker by trade, Jack Spira is his name. 
Uh, I know he used to live in a little town called Cockatoo, but he has moved, and I don't actually know where he's moved to, but he's still he's still based in um, he's still based in Australia. So I, I would have come across Jack with, from a, a now friend of mine. Um, there's a there's a couple that I know really well from Yak and Danda, and uh, they Greg McCartan and his wife Nell, and Greg just waltzed into Willie Clancy one year uh, with a mandolin and this mandolin was just an absolutely phenomenal instrument absolutely gorgeous and I, I, I got to I got to play it that week that um, Greg was there and um, ended up getting one made by Jack and further down the road then he also made me um, a tenor guitar as well which is just a just a beautiful beautiful instrument um so i might just i, I might do a couple of a couple of little jigs actually um, yeah i don't i don't just play reels <laughs> i can i can play jigs too <laughs> uh, this is actually a version of poor gina raffita i know there's there's like loads of different versions of that tune um it's just a very simple little version of it and then I'll play um, a jig afterwards called, now you'll have to excuse my Irish, it's called, I think it's called Erebald Shunnick, which is the fox's tail. And it was a tune written by fiddle player Donald McCaig. So I'll give these a go for you.
I really like the idea. I love, I, I've never played one, but I like, love the idea of the tenor guitar. Yeah. It, it, it just it has a different, that timbre to it. It's so definite, but it's also more mellow at the same time. Yeah. And it just, it just has, um, yeah, it, it, it just, it kind of makes you play in a different way. Like you, you just feel a little more relaxed behind it than maybe the banjo. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, um, <laughs> maybe because you can hide more I don't know it's it, it's just <laughs> it, it, when you have that lovely kind of sustain of of all of the notes on it and when you when you really really learn to use it to its advantage it's um yeah you can probably just hide a little bit more behind the tenor guitar it's uh it's not as um unforgiving <laughs> let's put it that way as the banjo <laughs> So, Teresa, what what is your first memory of music? I mean, do you um, have one that you can put your finger on? I, I, I su- well, I suppose it would have been probably the music lessons that we would have done as kids. Like I, I don't, like I don't really have, um, like I do. I like, like I, I have a, a eureka moment where I knew I wanted to play the banjo, but with my first memories of music that there was always there was always music really I suppose being played in the house not necessarily traditional Irish music now but you know just just music in general I know um mum had a rack of old LPs um oh there was anything and everything in there like Johnny Cash and Elvis and everything (laughs) not now not that I remember them specifically but I remember when we went to the music classes first so I would have been taught by a lady um called Anne Caulfield and uh oh man it was just it was it was so funny in a way now that I think about it so like all of us used to be herded into this this front room of her house, I think on a maybe a Tuesday evening or something like that, and uh, there was anything and everything, you know. There was whistles and mandolins and banjos and accordions and fiddles. There was everything, and I mean, I'm sure there wasn't that many people in the room, but it felt like there was about thirty of us in one room, you know. And you were kind of all given maybe different tunes and stuff like that. And I can remember then you were you were kind of let out then <laughs> into the hallway or into the into maybe other rooms in the house for maybe 10 minutes to try and learn a bit of the tune and come back into her if you had a little bit of it off and I remember my spot always used to be the top of the first flight of stairs in the house so I used to I used to kind of hibernate up there and sit on the top step trying to learn my whatever tune it was I was and and like I I have to say like I I really struggled with the notes I really really struggled with them like I could make head arse or tail of notes at the time like it just meant nothing to me like I'd have to I'd have to hear it so what I used to do was <laughs> I used to I used to um so I'd go up the top of the stairs and like Anne's husband like it might only be coming in from work you know like he I think Anne, I think Ted used to work like he probably was maybe working on a building site or something like and he used to have to pick his way up through this path because all these kids were sitting sitting on his <laughs> stairs in his house and he'd be like how are you at oh what tune did you get in there'd be a bit of chit chat and he'd eventually get up to his to the bedroom and what I used to do then was um if there was a 
if there was someone, say, on the stairs that got the same tune as me and they seemed to be making better headway with the notes, when they'd go back into the room, I'd go back in after them and I'd listen to what they got and what they had learned and then I'd try and play the little bit that they had played but by ear because I just couldn't, I couldn't get my head around. Like I knew, I knew obviously where all the notes were on the tin whistle but I just to put, to put them notes into what the tune was made no sense to me. So I'd have to hear it first. I just had to. So that's what I used to do. <laughs> it's a bit sneaky, wasn't it? <laughs> it, it it's pretty amazing. It, it takes a, a particular spirit in the, um, to have that many kids in your house all playing different instruments. Oh, yeah. I mean... Time. It sounds totally brilliant and also the kind of thing that would drive you completely off your rocker. I'd I'd say it drove Ted mad. Like I'd say the poor devil used to come in from work and go, oh, (laughs) Jesus, is it, is it Tuesday again? And he'd just, (laughs) just hibernate off into his room or. And this was in Luton. Yeah, this was in Luton. Yeah. So like, you know, music was, uh, we were lucky, you know, music was really strong over there then. Um, It was, um, like there was there was three or four different di- different music schools, if you like. Well, say like a bit like Anne, you know, a bit like Anne Caulfield. Like there was three or four other people doing that kind of thing as well, just in Luton. So like that was really good when you look at it now. Like it was a really strong kind of Irish environment over there, um, and their culture meant a lot to them. And you know, I suppose it was. You know, I, like, I, I, I honestly don't know why mum and dad even sent us to music in the first place. You know, it, it was obviously they had a love of it. But, you know, traditional Irish music versus any other music. I, I don't know. Do you know, I've never asked. I've never asked them. So I don't I don't know. Um, but I mean, it was I suppose it was pretty it was pretty clear after. um well, it wasn't. Nah, I'm. I'm not. I'm now, I'm not being honest. There, it wasn't very clear after the first few months that we were able to play because, I think. Well, I definitely hated the whistle. I absolutely hated it. Like, and somewhere along the journey, um, I had heard Anne's daughter Annette playing the banjo, and then I I also heard John Carty playing the banjo in. I think it was 1984 or 85, we went to, it was a Celtic tour, but it was a European tour. And they had one concert in London and mum and dad brought us to that concert. And I remember hearing John Carty then as well. And I had heard Annette and I think that whole thing happened like within maybe a month of each other. And that was it. I was like, I want a banjo. <laughs> and nothing would do me wow. until I got a banjo. That was it. Well. What what were they doing? What were they doing that made you sit up and listen to it? I I I I would say it was a combination of the sound of the banjo and the speed <laughs> that they were able to play at. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was it was just it was the sound and it was just that yeah it was it was something to do with you know maybe that the music sounded faster or more exciting. But that was it. I was I was hooked. I was in. That was what I wanted. And um, what was um at that stage was um was Kieran and uh, is it James? James, your older, my older brother. brother. Yeah. Yeah. 
Had they well? Was James was playing at that time? Was it? Yeah, yeah. Um, yes, Kieran probably wasn't. No, actually, Kieran was only seven. Um, well, maybe too young. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Yeah, or he could have been at a few of. He could have been at a few of the um, music classes that we were at in Anne's house doing doing whistle as well. It's funny. I don't ever remember Kieran playing the tin whistle, but James would have been playing the whistle with me, and then he would have learned the fiddle then as well. And then he progressed then when he was maybe uh, probably 11 or 12. There was, a, there was a big enough kind of campaign in England at the time to try and promote the playing of um, the Ealing Pipes and the harp as well. So James would have gone then to learn, to learn the pipes as well. So that, that, was, that would have been kind of the road he took. And then Kieran. Well, Kieran just like he was accordion initially, and then got a concertina in his hands and never looked back. Yeah, yeah. As you mentioned, different instruments. I just have just some picturing inside Anne's house. Yeah. And just the <laughs> the calamity. Oh, it was like it was. But, just so, but it's a beautiful image. Like I, I can see you sitting on that top stair. It's lovely. Oh yeah, um, yeah. That was my spot, and I and I'd be really annoyed as well if someone got like got it before me. I'd be like, oh god. They've robbed me. They've <laughs> yeah. robbed me pitch. <laughs> Do you know um, when you're talking there about about your mum and dad, and you're not quite sure what it was that that had them give you that opportunity in Irish music, particularly. I mean, how, how did they feel about living in Luton for for so many years? Um, Do you know? Yeah, like I I I, I always I I think they quite enjoyed living in Luton. I I know. I know, like, I, well, I suppose they had maybe no choice to begin with, like, when they had to emigrate, like, yeah, I mean, they had to emigrate for work, it was as simple as that, so, but I, I think, I think um, their outlook would have been, we make the best of this, which they did, you know, like, I don't, I, Dad always would have said, like, England was very good to him, and it was, because... In fairness, now when we when we all started playing all of them instruments, like there was an awful lot of expense attached to buying them instruments for us. So I think, like from that perspective, like Dad would have like he he was never out of work. Um, always had a job to go to. Always had work, and therefore, always had, you know, a a, a good enough provision for his family so I I don't I don't think um, I don't think they would have had any you know negative feelings about living in England and as well as that like if you looked at what where they were maybe mixing and socializing like it was just with all Irish people so it really felt a lot of home from home I think mm. yeah yeah. Did you spend a lot of time with the the cultists in Luton then? We we would have. I suppose we were like that. That would have been that would have been very much our our outlet and our link. You know. So I mean, you would have been. So you would have, you would have learned your music with Anne Caulfield, who was affiliated to that to that local cultus. Right. It would have been Lee Grave Luton branch of cultus. Um, and so then from there, you like your natural progression really was then to, to start competing in competitions, all that kind of thing. So 
yeah, we would have had a, a big enough involvement with them. And also then as well, like it was its own little community really in England. So that would have also then given you access to other branches of cultists and that they would have had, they would have had a session, like each branch of cultists had a session every month, but they were all on different uh, weeks of the month. So like every Friday you would be gone to a session in one of the branches of cultists, you know, either in Luton or London which was, that was great, like that was instant social life, really, you know, even from a very, very early age. So, yeah, that, that network of, of having that would have, yeah, yeah, I suppose you didn't really think of it being maybe involved in Celtus per se, but you were just always within the, the realms of, of traditional Irish music. You know, it's, it's funny, we, we've talked about Celtus a lot, or touched on it a lot mm. um in in this podcast but we've never really dived into it in terms of the the meaning of it and the history of it i mean it it's phenomenally influential i, I mean that doesn't even do it justice mm. to say that right you know what i mean it's like it's like such a bedrock yeah it is because i think it really enables um you know the, those kind of little satellite communities or Irish communities, especially abroad. You know, especially in England, if you, and and America, I'm sure to a large extent. You know, where it kind of gave you a platform to work from. So, it provided the, well, to a certain extent, the teachers. You know, they they would have been affiliated to different branches of cultists, the same as they are here now. You know, um. And it would have just given you that platform then to, well, I suppose just to grow your music. Um, and from from there, obviously, you made your friends and that would be... And so while you ended up progressing, say, to the likes of the Coach and Horses sessions in London, you know, when you got to that kind of mid to late teens and, and early into your 20s, um, everybody pretty much I could say hand on heart anyone that was my own age in the sessions at the coach and horses would have probably started their music with a branch of cultures you know that they would have been affiliated to within their own within their own local locality yeah um, did you go back to Ireland a lot then as a youngster? yeah loads like with your parents yeah yeah right. well and even like even so like we would have gone back every year without fail maybe maybe twice a year we'd have definitely come every year for the flat you know so when we when we got to that stage where we were qualifying to the all ireland so you, i mean our holiday would have been hinged around being here at that time so like mum was from west cork so you would have done maybe a four or five day stint down in West Cork and dad was from Lewisburg so you'd end up going to Lewisburg as well and along the way we'd generally stop off in Doolan actually in County Clare just because there was there was always music there there was music there every night of the week so like it didn't matter what day you went you could get a really good <laughs> session which was which was oh, yeah. great that was so the the whole yeah like our whole holidays like from the age of 11 or 12 onwards would have been really it would have been 
hinged around the, where you were going, what you were doing music-wise, that kind of thing. Like, and even like down in West Cork, um, like we would have we would have played a lot of music when we were kids there with Michael Dwyer, and equally in Lewisburg we would have played a lot of music with accordion player Seamus Heenahan. So we kind of had music on tap for the whole, you know, three weeks or so that you were here. So that was that was great. What an exciting premise to, to to be young and know you're going somewhere where you're just going to be surrounded for two weeks. Yeah, solid of just and best players in a place that's absolutely that's rooted in 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 your background. I I can only imagine how uh, how giddy. Can you just imagine the the road trip to the ferry must have been? Yeah, just it, was, it was it was it year. was great crack and and obviously then your whole you know you had all this great music along the way and then the anticipation was that you were actually then going to get to the flat as well and maybe do the Scholastia classes for the week before it, that kind of thing. So, yeah, like she was mad did you, exciting. Did your mum make sandwiches and pack a flask of tea and all? Well, we had, a, ca- we had a camper van. Right. So we, we, we like, we, um, oh. <laughs> we were a fancy man, I tell you. We, we had a camper van. So, like, we, we were, like, literally on tour like it was O'Grady's on tour from when we left um, that's a, that sounds <laughs> so great when we left Hollyhead to when you'd get back to, to 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 Dublin to get back on the boat to go to go back again uh yeah like we used to bomb it around in a, in a we had a Volkswagen camper van first we were dead trendy like we, we weren't we didn't think we were then but now like looking back at it we had an orange and white Volkswagen camper van and uh then after a few years, like we got one of them, them bigger ones, like with the bed over the cab and everything. So it's like a touring around. Tony, there's a yeah, <laughs> there's a sitcom in this. It's like like a Derry Girls type, yeah. oh, the O'Grady's, and it's all yes. like nineties. Yeah, 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 it was traditional uh, music. Oh yeah, it was it was it was just great. And sure, it was it was so handy because I mean you could park up in the middle of town, um, go in. Play tunes, session like Doolan, you know, if like Kieran, like it was, he's he's three three years younger than me, so like I mean, when we used to go to Doolan, like if Kieran got tired, she you could throw him out into the camper van and we could stay in. <laughs> God, he'd kill me when he hears this. <laughs> but um, yeah, so like there, there was, do you know, it it was. God, when you think of it, we were so so lucky, really lucky, and like That's loads of room as well yeah. in 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 the camper van as well. So, yeah, it's great, great crack. I I I used to um, when I was living in Scotland, um, one of my best mates had an orange Volkswagen camper van <laughs> of an eighties kind of vintage, and um, had many misadventures in it. But at one point, I was temporarily homeless um so i i slept in it for about three weeks in the, in the, in the street just outside his house it was bloody brilliant <laughs> best holiday you've ever had <laughs> best home best home you ever had um, but you have to you have yeah. to you have to know about gearboxes and things that was the the thing that's always stopped me here was kind of i always just thought oh, i'll be great to get a camper van but to get one of those old ones, you really know, need to know how uh, to yeah, do I, things with clutches. It's like getting stuff. a set of Ellen pipes. It is like getting yeah. a set of Ellen pipes. Yeah, with I, wheels. Yeah, yeah, I can. Like I can remember, I can remember us breaking down like a couple of times, and the AA either like towing us 
<laughs> home or to the boat or something. <laughs> like it was, yeah. Like it, you'd you'd need. I, I think that I think um, the one we had was, I think it was 1979 was the the year of the of its reg. So, um, oh yeah, it was it was God. It was when you think about it, that thing did some serious mileage and and uh, it it did. <laughs> It brought us everywhere, like it really did. It it was a great, a great, great thing. So there, there was a practical side to that, obviously, for your parents, yeah. right? Um, um, because you're completely self-sufficient and it's it's economical and stuff. But you know, I, I guess they must have been aware as well that they were just giving you these amazing memories. Right? I I don't know if they if they even were. I I think that it was it was just just what they did you know it was just what they did and and I think as well I think also like with them having the camper van and stuff like that like it gives them amazing freedom so like you were never you know you were never tied to having to be anywhere you know on on your holidays so say if you know if say if the sessions in Doolan were just brilliant as they always were to be honest with you but like if you wanted to stay an extra day you could there was no there was yeah. nothing that told you you had to be anywhere at a certain time because you had you were self-sufficient you know so that that was great freedom for them and I, I think they kind of liked that as well like they weren't oh like I wouldn't call my parents hippies by any stretch of the imagination they're absolutely not but I, I think there was just that kind of that um, enjoyment of having that kind of freedom for two or three weeks of your life every year. Yeah, that sounds lovely. I'm kind of I'm pretty jealous, to be honest. Yeah. So it's, it's well, now it wasn't it's really sweet. Yeah, it was great, but like I mean, it, it you know it wasn't all sunshine and roses like when you had to get the beds put up and set up and. <laughs> You know, all, all oh, the, mom. Yeah, exactly. You'd be there going, oh, do I have to? Or if you had to wash the dishes in, in the, the basin outside in cold water and stuff like that. <laughs> like it was, yeah, it had its downsides. But in fairness, like we were, we were very lucky, very, very lucky. Would you uh, mind if we stop for another tune? I've, I want to ask you about competing in the, in the flowers and, um, and then your musical career from then on but um would you mind if we had another tune yeah i might um or set of tunes i might i might give this mandolin a run um just to, yeah this is a another another beautiful instrument that um that jack made I have no name for the second one now, but I know the first one is um, is O'Dowd's, I think. So I'll just go here.
Wow. <laughs> that was brilliant. Beautiful, isn't it? <laughs> well, I don't know, but I love mandolin. It's I just uh from um from where we are it sounds like you're playing down a drain pipe, but um but that's just that's just the, that's just the that's just the nature of um, Australian internet. So. Yeah, it's it's always nice then when we get the files back and we get to actually listen to it. And we go, oh Jesus Christ, that was that was gorgeous. <laughs> yeah, uh, but it sounded, yeah, it sounded it's, great. Um, it's probably it's probably the instrument I I would pick up a lot at home. Do you know if I, if I was learning a tune or heard something or was Aye. trying to do something, it's probably the instrument I would go to first Why? at home. Uh, it's just, it's portable. You can, <laughs> you can walk around heavy. with it. It <laughs> doesn't have a huge yeah, resonance yeah, on it's it. Lovely. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. It is, it's not like, it, it's not... Um, it's not an 80-year-old banjo like what I have that weighs an absolute ton because it's all brass. Mm-hmm. So the mandolin is is a lovely, yeah, light and just, I don't know, it's, it's very, it's easy to play it as well. It's lovely and close and like Jack really, I have to say, all credit to him. Like he, he just, he, he's a phenomenal instrument maker. He really, really is. He really takes the care and he's bothered. You know, as as to be honest, as most instrument makers are. Uh, what I wanted to just go back to is, um, I know you you mentioned earlier on how all three of you competed in the flowers. So, what age did you start competing mm. at that level? Um. Oh, Jesus, we were. <laughs> I I think I think I was, I think I got to my first All Ireland on the banjo when I was. I think I was 11. Wow. Yeah. So you're a bit I of a slow starter 11. then. <laughs> it's a very, yeah, awful slow, yeah. Not fast out of the traps at all. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I was, um, yeah, I think I was 11. Right. Now, and to be honest with you, I was, I was just, I was competing, but not competing, like, with, with the level that was, that was there, you know. But it, it was probably one of them things that makes you want to get better really to be honest like you can you can um you can gauge that's nah, not it's not that you know i mean the flyer is the flyer is the best player on the day it's not necessarily the best player ever or the best player you know that that's that's around at the time but it it just gave you a sense of where you needed to strive to and I suppose it's a very different, it's quite a different environment like when you were growing up in England because you don't maybe have it on tap to a certain extent that, that you would have it here in Ireland. Um, so the flowers, yeah, the flowers, I think it was it was good for us in, in a lot of ways. And obviously it wasn't even just the competition end of it, then you also got to meet great friends and stuff like that as well yeah, i was and gonna so, ask you about that but it was it was a good gauge for us it definitely was and it made you want to get better definitely. what what would you say like if you can remember what it was like being that age and and when you're looking forward to going on your holidays to ireland and, and if the flower was part of that how important was the competition in in the grand scheme of going to ireland on holidays with the family um i I would say pretty important, 
you know, um, this was your, I suppose this was something you had been working towards, you know, so you, you had all of them other things going on in, in your life, school and friends and sports and stuff like that, but then you also had this other element as well where you got to, I suppose you got to compete with the best, you know, like how, how many 12 and 13 year old kids can say that or can do that, you know, with it within within their own speciality, I suppose. Um, so yeah, it it was it it was yeah it was pretty important. Like it was it was important to me. Like it was it was something, you know, you really wanted to. Well, it was something you really wanted to win if you could, and and you did kind of feel as well that. It's not that you felt that you were at a disadvantage coming from England, but it's just that there would have been so few English winners, if you like. Are you a are you a nervous character at all, or are you quite confident? Yeah, no, I'd be, I'd be, oh yeah, believe me, I went up there in competition and I definitely made an absolute oh mess. <laughs> from start to finish of some of the stuff um, I would have done, especially in the early years. And and I would have probably in my late teens and early 20s, like I took a complete break from even competing. Um, I think, yeah, it's, you know, you can, and, I, and I, I, would, I would even say this now as an adjudicator, you know, on, on paper, you might, you might look at the program of competitors and on paper you might have an idea in your head as to who you think may come out first, second and third in a competition. But to be honest with you, I have learned that you actually leave your opinions at the door of the competition room and you go in with a complete blank canvas when you sit down to adjudicate because there are so many different elements within a performance or within someone being able to pull off that perfect performance on a day that there's so there's so much you know there's there's oh, there's everything you know you just could be having a bad day i had a lot more bad days in competition than i had good ones i right. can tell you <laughs> I, you lose way more than you ever win um but then but but you but you you were never sufficiently discouraged by that right you discouraged by by those, by those bad days like it sounds like you're sufficient uh, like you have a are you competitive that way it, it was just it would spur think, you on yeah i'd say i am yeah i think i am quite competitive and but I, but i think a lot of it though as well is is maybe mentoring yourself into a place that you you know i mean i, I don't think anyone can well, there'd be very few people that I think can go up and sit in competition and not be nervous, but it's trying to, it's try, it's just trying to um, still perform under that kind of pressure. And it is pressure. Like, it, it doesn't matter what way you want to look at it. Like, it's not like a football match where you can come off at half time and, <laughs> and pull on a couple of subs. <laughs> like, that, that doesn't happen. <laughs> you're You're sitting there and you've got two pieces of music to play and it's all going to happen in less than probably four and a half minutes or three pieces of music or whatever, you know, depending on the age group that you're at. And like you, you really, really need all the luck in the world <laughs> to get you through all of them. Um, 
I, I would have been an exceptionally nervous, yeah, nervous day. kid and adult in, in competition, not, not just, but I think that's just the nature of the person. Um, but then you, le you learn to, um, you, do, you learn a place where you can kind of get above that to a certain degree and still be able to play to a good level. When you're adjudicating then, uh, you're on a panel? Generally, you're. We'll see. I'd say when you're when you're at all Ireland level adjudicating, it's there's probably two adjudicators, right. usually two, um, for any of the the kind of solo duet trio competitions, and then yeah, there would be a panel then for like Kayleigh Band competitions. Um, so then that's the majority rules on that one. Um, but you would have to come to a consensus with your with your person if you're doing a solo what, you know? what's that conversation like right because so you know <laughs> that's that's my question what's that? i was gonna i was gonna put in a lot of other stuff there but yeah. like actually what is that conversation like with somebody else who has a different i i think um i suppose i i'm i'm adjudicating now a long time i'm i'm probably 20 years maybe sitting in that chair um i, I would always I'd always like to kind of maybe lay my criteria out first, you know, so that you you have some kind of common ground with that person, you know. So it's it's what you're looking for, you know. So personally, I I I would be looking for I like I like you know to see a style or or a bit of a bit of stylish playing in within. The, the kids or the adults that are competing so it's just it's you know I, I think when when everyone gets to that level of the All-Irelands like you're already all technically equipped you've 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 got all of the tools there to you know take two tunes out of the bag and play them really really well but it, you're then just looking for what is that extra x factor I suppose um, and generally, I have to say, like I, I've, like I've never had any major rows with other adjudicators. You know, you you can, and you have notes and you have stuff you can refer back to. So, you know, you you can you can come you can come to a consensus. There there may be a bit of you know pulling and pushing with, you know, I prefer this one over this one. But as long as you have your reasonings for that I think you can come to a consensus with that person and when you're uh, watching um, maybe somebody who's like 14 or 15 playing um, does your heart go out to them <laughs> oh yeah yeah <laughs> oh it does I mean I've walked in their shoes <laughs> it does I mean it you know, competition, it does strange things to people. It really does. Like, I mean, you, you know, you have kids, I suppose, that would come across very confident and all about themselves and well able. And then they sit up in front of you and like you can, you can see them physically shaking. Like, it's my, oh yeah, my heart would go out to them. Absolutely. It, it really, really would. And, and it's because I know. You know, I know, I know what that feels like. I know exactly what that feels like. So you you kind of feel, you do feel quite privileged to be sitting there judging them, 
you know, and not not because it's not because it's an All Ireland, not because it's the the highest level of competition in in the land. It's not that. It's not that kind of privilege. It's kind of like it's that you you can sympathise with them to an extent, so you can see or you know if they've had a bad day. It's just a bad day. Like it's not. They're not bad players. You know, it's just a bad day. That's all. So, Therese, the other thing, the other thing I wanted to then go back to is kind of like we've jumped all over the place, but it's you, <laughs> you. I want to take you back to Dublin, if we can kind of go to to yeah. there. So, when we were previous in the conversation, you've been in London and you came to Dublin. So then you were in Dublin for a good number of years, then, right? Yeah, I was in Dublin. Um... I was, so I moved to Dublin permanently in 97 and I was in Dublin then until 2005 um, and then like I got married in 2003 so I was still doing a healthy amount of commuting from like we, where I'm living in Sligo that's where we set up home myself and Declan and uh, so I was still doing a considerable amount of commuting and it was really because like at the time, I suppose in two, well there was no there was no other financial sector if you like anywhere else in the country only in Dublin. So, um, 2005 then decided to we made made the break and I moved to Sligo and we bought a pub. <laughs> Just right. for something different. Gas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we bought we bought a pub. So, um, what pub did you buy? We we, so we we bought it was only a small little village pub, not far from where we actually live. Um, so, it while it was while it was a good thing to do for us at the time, um, it probably didn't end up being the greatest thing we ever did. We. Like it, it was lovely. I mean, the, you know, the, the first few years of it was great. It was local village pub. Um, I, you know, it was the centre of the universe, really. Like, I mean, it was a, a pub and a shop and a post office. And, uh, you know, it was everything. It was kind of everything in a little village called Tour de Strand. Um, we went into partnership with another couple. Um, it just... I think, to be honest, what happened eventually was the recession hit. That was a massive, massive blow because, you know, you were obviously living rural Ireland with a rural business and then all of a sudden, say, half of your population under the age of 25 was actually emigrating to Australia, you know. So it started off brilliantly and it, it definitely like I said it was the right thing for us to do at the time because it, it was a job you know and there was there was kind of an always there was always a an itch if you like that needed scratching I think that I wanted to you know run my own business and pub would have been something I would have been interested in running <laughs> not not like pub per se I like uh, I do like being in pubs but not just for, for the sake yeah. of being in the pubs like it was it was a business I thought I could make a go of 
Um, and eventually it just, well, it wasn't like it wasn't able to sustain a, a four person partnership. And obviously that comes then with a price and there's breakdown in partnership and communications and all the rest of it. Um, so in 2014, I, I was, I was still doing a bit of teaching music on the side, if you like. Um, and in 2014, I just had, like, I had to decide that the pub, the pub just wasn't a viable business. It wasn't a viable place to make a living anymore. Not, not for, not for four people. Um, so I, I left basically just said enough is enough. There's no point trying to flog a dead horse. I really wanted to sell the business, but the other partners didn't want to sell the business. So I, I kind of agonized over that, that um, decision, if you like, to, to leave for a long, long, long time, which, which was probably an unhealthy amount of time, to be honest with you. Um, and eventually, eventually, Christmas 2014, just said, right, that's it, out. Going to get out, going to get up, walk away from it, let them run it as they saw fit to run it. And I suppose deep down, I just knew eventually they would see the sense in, in selling it. And, and eventually they did. So the, the business was sold um, in, I think it was sold in 2016, 17. Yeah, 2017 it was sold. Um, yeah, it was, like I say, probably one of the best and definitely one of the worst things I ever did. <laughs> but do you know what? It's, that's it. That's life. That's, that's the card you're dealt and that's what you, that's what you go with. But what it did make me do is probably it was the, the push, if you like, that I needed to, well, to, to, to converge those two parallel lives and, just jump on the music wagon and go right okay can, can I make a go of this can I do this and I mean that that's you know I know as I say it's obviously not all that successful at the minute with the lockdown because I would have done an awful lot of teaching in schools and stuff like that but that'll come back you know and um, I've thoroughly enjoyed the last five years of of doing yeah. this did you have any trepidation about doing it, given that you were coming out of another sort of multi-year thing that hadn't that hadn't quite worked out? Um, with the, with the music, yeah. and and also the fact that you've got no. this thing in your life that that you've just been steeped in, and then turning it into the means yeah. of of bringing in money sort of changes your relationship with it a wee bit um or does it no well number number <laughs> no i don't think it okay. does i think to be honest with you it's it's opened like it's opened up a whole a whole new world in a way so like no i had absolutely no no argument with myself about going into business with myself <laughs> because i figured um i i know me best your, and, your uh, own ideal business yeah partner. Yeah, absolutely. I am absolutely my own ideal business partner. Yeah, definitely. Um, so that that was a huge plus. You know, I had me to to 
kind of dictate to or to take instruction from and that's working really well at the moment mm -hmm. <laughs> for the last few years and then I think within so with it within kind of the what I'm doing um there's so much variety and I think that is the thing that is so interesting about it um like I teach okay so I teach in a few very small schools around the local area the, the biggest school I'm in has 70 pupils in total so I go into these different schools once a week and you have everything I mean everything from Mary had a little lamb right up to <laughs> whatever jig reel that some of the older kids in that primary school can manage so like from September to Christmas, Mary has a lot of lambs, <laughs> an awful lot of lambs around the area yeah. and a lot of stars twinkle, twinkle as well yeah. around the area from September to Christmas. So I've got like everything from first class, which is your five and six year olds up to your 11 and 12 year olds. So say so, so that would be my core work. Um, and then after that, then I, I would also teach, you know, teach kids privately one-to-ones or small groups and they would be the kids I suppose maybe from the schools that are showing that extra interest or ability and their parents can see that and then they progress on to maybe coming to me like I say in smaller groups or one-to-ones and then of course you've got your absolute whiz kids that are competing at the highest level at the at the flare and then I would have as well a chunk of online work which a lot of it would be it well it would be mostly adults actually and I just I have to say I love teaching adults they're just great crack <laughs> it's just, why why do you love teaching like, I don't I, I don't know like I think I think because I think when someone decides that they're going to learn music as an adult rather than as a child or that they revisit it as an adult from maybe having learned something as a child like they are they are learning from a whole different perspective and they're interested in ah they're interested in so many different areas of the music um, of the tunes of the types maybe of ornamentation that you're doing it's it's just that kind of whole package of interest which I, I just I find I find it I just find it really interesting to teach adults I really do I, I love it I get I get as much out of it as I do from teaching the kids definitely and it's variety and I think it's the whole the whole scope of having that variety of what I'm doing um, that I just really enjoy I really enjoy it best job I've ever had no offense now to the likes of the bearings of the world but yeah definitely definitely the best job I've had so Teresa um I know that we sort of said we we wanted I, th I think we told you how many tunes we wanted but we'd love another tune and then we'd like to talk to you about the album do you still have time are you okay yeah I'm good yeah yeah it's um yeah the sun is out and I don't have much else planned for today so this is that's great. always wise yeah. when you're talking to us um <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I kind of gathered that from listening to a couple of your other <laughs> podcasts. <laughs> I did. Um, yeah, I'll try. I'll go back to the banjo. All right. And 
obviously that means then I go back to the reels as well. So, so what, what's the um, what's what's this instrument? Um, this banjo. Oh, this uh, here, lads. This is this is definitely the the most amazing um, instrument I've ever had in my hands. But of a banjo, let's put it that way. Um, it's an Epiphone. I'm, I'm a complete geek about vintage banjos. Uh, I I have books. I have. <laughs> oh, the, I I'm just I'm a disaster when it comes to vintage banjos. This this is an Epiphone banjo. It's an Epiphone Deluxe. Um, that the Deluxe is the so there would have been different levels of Epiphone banjos um, that they would have produced in New York back in the 1920s. So th this one was made in 1927. Um, the workmanship on it is is just phenomenal. Absolutely amazing. Like it's all inlaid it's all engraved um it's gold plated <laughs> need i go any further <laughs> it's it's just it's really blingy but at the heart of it all it, it is there's such substance in it when you're when you're playing it like it, it is i don't know it's a bit like um it's a bit like hitting a golf ball exactly the way you want to hit a golf ball and it goes for you uh -huh. <laughs> this banjo does does that like it nearly plays itself it is just a phenomenal instrument and i just think that you know that that era back in the 1920s um when they they made these instruments and there was loads of loads of these like houses that that would have made um banjos to this level so you had Epiphone, Vega, Paramount, uh, Ludwig. There's just there's a phenomenal amount of them, which was a thriving business at the time, and then all of a sudden gone. Do you know, like in the early 30s, uh, when depression and recession and everything set in in America, there was no call for no call for the entertainment, and therefore no call for the instruments, but much to my advantage a lot of these instruments have found their way into into traditional Irish music you know which is which is great it really is like there's a there's a very healthy amount of vintage banjos in in Ireland in Ireland now um and that's no thanks to the likes of the guy that I got this off Joe Diamond he's from Derry and uh, Joe Joe Diamond is kind of the, the granddad of vintage banjos so uh Joe's great. Like he, he, he would have done in the last maybe twenty years. He would have done a lot of sourcing them from the states and, and bringing them in. You know, so. So, so Teresa, can I ask you so just a question? Just because I'm a banjo nerd, like it's obviously different. You're a banjo geek, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I do I don't know whether I'm just picking up on this because I'm a banjo geek, but it seems that banjo players seem to obsess about their instrument a little bit more than other instruments yeah. do you find that is that is that am i just picking that up or is that do you think a thing as well <laughs> no. well i mean i do i'm i'm a that's like i'm a disaster if, if anyone asks me a question in a workshop about the banjo they could still be listening to me twitting on about it like 10 or 15 minutes later anytime like, i go to a session it's the same thing it just seems to be banjo players if a new banjo comes on the scene they just flock and then it is that's the discussion yeah. for the hours <laughs> that's there and it but doesn't happen that, as much maybe that happen with doesn't that happen with ill and pipers too well that's the only one in my mind that i'm thinking 
that happens in, as much. Like right. I know it happens in all instruments, but it just feels to me that it happens a lot with banjos right. and nylon pipes. I think though it's it's because they're so they're like some of them are just they're just so ornate, you know, um, and they're yeah. I think it's a it's also. I do think there's a certain type of person that is attracted <laughs> to the banjo. Let's move on. Like I, I call them, <laughs> yeah, I, I call them, and I have regularly called them the, the boy races of trad music, that there's just this certain type of, there's a certain type of kid that gets attracted to a banjo, and like all of them kids are going to be driving fast cars like when they're older. It's just. I want you to do that for every I instrument. Don't know. Now. What, what are the other ones? What's the Elon pipes? What's the? What's the <laughs> whistle? Right. What are the What are the ten whistles? They're the. Um, they're the um, <laughs> referees. Library bound. Uh, speckies. They yeah they, they are they the um, are they the compliance people of. <laughs> Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, I like it. This is this is gonna run and run. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I definitely think you could um, you could definitely pick a career for the people that play the instruments. Like, I in you know in a previous life, I definitely did Formula One racing. Like, I was definitely that Ferrari person or you know test driver for. Ferrari or Porsche or something. So, yeah, to whistles maybe. Yeah, maybe they're the compliance people of the, um, of the trad world. So, so before you do this, Janelle, one other question about the banjo. So, um, so if it was built in the in the twenties, the the music it was built for was would that have been like trad jazz type Dixieland jazz type stuff? It or? would. Well, it it would have been. It would have been a lot of. Um, they would have been jazz orchestras yeah so you would have had yeah you would have had you know your tenor banjos um plectrum banjos kind of way in the background there would have been five yeah, yeah like that you would have had bass banjos like they even built like a banjo that the like the diameter of the head and the the resonator of the banjo would have been something in the region of four to five foot wide if you know what I mean. Yeah, I've seen pictures of that. So you would have had a whole, yeah, you would have had a whole different combination of different types of banjos that would have performed as a band. So, I mean, I, I've, I've actually got, um, I've got one of the old Epiphone Plectrum banjos as well. So like that would have been a 22 fret banjo. It's a monster to play it. Like it is, it, it's, but the sound of it is just phenomenal. It's got this big, deep, resonating sound. Um, it sounds like an owl tractor. Oh, lovely. <laughs> it kind of just chugs along nicely. Yeah, it's um, so... And, it, and, of course, when when all of that, you know, when, when all of that entertainment side of things um, ground to a halt in America, then... The factories also closed, and then these banjos were just left lying up in different houses. A shame, but they they have stood the test of time. Like um, they're in amazing condition, you know. Okay. Tune. Tune. <laughs> I'll try, as I said, a couple of reels. Do the Sailor on the Rock, and um, 
I will try my best to get into the cabin reel afterwards. <laughs> Thank you. See how this goes. See, I, I love how you said you, in another life, would have been a, a race car driver. And, you know, when you said it, I was thinking of your album. And what came to my mind anyway was because it's it, the speed, but it's the precision and the control with it. I love it. It's so good. <laughs> uh, so when you... it, That probably says a lot more about Jack Telty, maybe, than it does about my playing, I think. <laughs> when, we, when you were talking about... Oh, you, when we mentioned before you finished with the pub and you were concentrating on music, how, how long down the road was it before you you decided that you were going to record? Um, but to be honest, pro- probably immediately. Right, so that was part, that, of, the, part of the master plan. Yeah, yes it was. No, well, you yeah. have to make it and, and plan. Yeah, you do. Oh, you absolutely do. And I spe- like, especially at my age, like, I, you know, it's it's not. Um, you don't see many forty somethings walking into the studio for the first time, going, "I'm going to make an album." <laughs> um, that's usually something that happens twenty years was earlier. Was that something that you uh, were particularly conscious of at the time? What was age something that was really playing know. on you? Uh, not until someone, not until someone said it to me. <laughs> I think when I did the, I think in the Irish music magazine when the album uh, came out, they were like, "So what made you, what what made you decide at this stage in your life that you were going to go into the studio to record an album?" And I was like, "Stage in my life? Oh yeah, actually, I'm yeah. Like I mean, it, it isn't 
common that someone my age would go in to the studio for the first time. So at that, it didn't really dawn on me until someone said it to me. And then I suppose when I, so when I left the pub and, you know, I'd have bandied this conversation around with, with people before, during and after I left the pub. Um, and I, I just remember, actually, it was probably Greg McCartan, that guy that I, I was telling you about that I, that I met at Willie Clancy. Like we, we've become very firm friends and uh, I, I see them every couple of weeks. We, I still teach them online, but now we talk as much as we play, to be honest, at this stage. But I remember Greg saying to me, um, you know, if, if you're going to go down the road of, of doing music full time, then what, what, what will be or what could be your biggest asset? And I said, oh, I, you know, I don't know, maybe, you know, I was kind of thinking down the road of should I set up a, a school, a music school? Should I, you know, all them different things pop into your head. And he was like, no, you need to make an album. Like you need to put your music out there and say, this is what I do. This is how I do it. If you like it, great. If you don't, then just don't say anything. <laughs> Do you know, it, it, it's one of them things. So, yeah, very quickly, it, the the idea, I suppose, um, became a plan. became a became a plan. So i I would have I would have initially gone down to Jack Telty. Jack Jack recorded the album for me um, in his studio down in Lisey Casey in County Clare. And I went, I went down in 2016, and it was just a disaster. <laughs> I did. I went down for. I went down. What went it wrong? Was just. Because oh, I'm always interested. Uh, in what, everything. Like what kind of things? Like what? What is, what does a disaster session look like? Um. Well, number one. I went down like for three days, which is probably, I just thought, I don't know, I had this idea in my head, oh, I go in now and get this done now in three days. Ah, here, who was I kidding? That was just, do you know, like, um, ah, it just, I, I was I was very nervous of the environment. And even though, like, I had, I had my wing woman with me, Catherine McHugh, Kate is just, ah, uh, oh, she's phenomenal piano player. And I, I always knew like she would be coming into the studio with me to do it. But I just, I don't know, it was very hard to get past that kind of nervousness. And I just could always, I, I always felt I could hear that in my playing for those first three days that I was there. So, you know, I came, came home after three days and I had recorded nine tracks in those three days. And Jack sent them to me and I probably listened to four of them half listened to four of them and went no nah, that's a load of rubbish that's yeah. not not doing that so that was it i just i said to jack no nah, this just isn't going to work so that that was left um and then jack jack used to come up and teach at the local um summer school that we have here in sligo the south sligo summer school so jack jack was up this week and I went for a couple of pints with him on one of the evenings and he said, do you know, Trace, I was listening. I was listening to that, what you did in the studio last year. And he said, it's actually not that bad. <laughs> I said, what does not that bad mean? <laughs> so he said, I, look, he said, you might not have been happy with it, 
but he said there is potential there and he said and you know yourself you can play a lot better than that and you can he said because I've heard you so why don't you just come down now that you know what the environment is why don't you come down again just come down for one day and just don't set yourself the target of recording a whole album mm -hmm. just do a track and that that just yeah that flipped the whole thing on its head and as well as that jack jack is great because um he was like look if if your best time to play like is six or seven o'clock in the evening then let's do that so let's stagger the day out let's <laughs> let's go for dinner yeah. and go for a couple of pints <laughs> and then come back yeah. and then do some of the recording and and yeah i mean that it that worked that worked for me um, just being in that very relaxed kind of environment. You were back in with the same set of tunes. Uh, no, see, I, see, that was that was probably the part of the problem as well. The first time is that I didn't have a plan. I just went down. Right. <laughs> I just went right, like, and I was thinking probably a lot on the spot. And so when I went down the second time, um, I. I probably moved tunes, you know, from different sets into other sets so that it didn't feel the same. So some of the, yeah, some of the tunes, the tunes were the same, but just in different places. That was all. Yeah, okay. um, and I had a bit more of a plan. Now, some, some of the stuff that's on the album was literally done as it was unfolding, you know, like some of the, maybe the slower tracks. There's a couple of tracks that I did uh, like there'd be a slow set of jigs on the tenor guitar and there was also a set of waltzes um, like they just developed in the studio which was great that that was great crack that was really good that you could you know kind of hear hear the different things layering up and you know just having having fun with it you know there's a definite chemistry between the um between yourself and Catherine throughout the the whole album like the, yeah. and and I think obviously Jack like Jack played a big role in the sound. Like I, me, myself and Don were just talking about the sound of the album before we came on and, and talked to you. This I started this chat, but as a um, it feels like the room was captured, but it's still also quite polished and it's really still kind of light and bright and crisp. Like it's a there's a great mix there. Thank you. <laughs> That's great to hear. That's really good to hear. Yeah, it was. I, I know. I remember when I went in, like when I went into Jack with um let's say for example now that them two waltzes that I did like one of them is the Tennessee waltz yeah and yeah. I went into Jack and I said I've got this vision <laughs> like <laughs> poor Jack like I could say like I could see Jack's face you know when you walk in the door and you say Jack I've got this vision and he's like oh Jesus here <laughs> she goes again like it's just <laughs> like and he was like what is it this time Teresa and I was like okay so I want one of them waltzes to be nice and mellow, and I want the other one to sound like you flung open the doors of a saloon back in 1922 and walked into a bar with a couple of horses parked outside. And he was like, right, okay, yep. And he said, and would you like the tumbleweed coming through there as well? I was like, yep, bit of tumbleweed would be lovely. So he he just, like, Jack is, he just, and, and, and Catherine also was she was so good as well at kind of giving you a melody to your, you know, it's really like the soundtrack of a movie. So like she can 
she she could nearly preempt what I was thinking and she and she does that as well with my music like she can I don't know she can preempt nearly if I'm gonna do a variation or take a bit of a you know sharp left <laughs> through that bit of the reel or something like that she just seems to be able to know what's coming and when and um she can match you toe for toe. Yes, it's lovely. So uh, that album for yeah. any listeners look um, to buy it. Where's the best place to get that? Is that from your Bandcamp? It's still on Bandcamp. Yeah, yeah. Now I'll be honest. There's Banjoista. Yeah, yeah, Banjoista. Um, I still have. I think there's still one box of CDs left here upstairs, and that's it. Ah, so, getting quick. Yes, if they. If they would like um, a copy, as in you can have a CD, <laughs> um, yeah, the band, band, Bandcamp is um, is still up and running, and I mean I'll I'll leave I'll leave the downloads up there for a while, but I probably I know I don't know is it for or against for this kind of thing, but probably going to kick it onto Spotify at some stage, just not not for. It's not that I'll be making too many twenty-six cents out of it, but it's just for having my music out there. I suppose. Yeah, it's a double-edged sword, isn't it? It is. It's very, very double-edged sword, and you know, I, I take my hat off to people like Luca Bloom. There a couple of weeks ago that launched or released his new album, and is not going to be releasing it on any kind of streaming um, platform. Yeah. You know, he, and and it's not that I don't think that much of my music I do it's just I, I suppose I just would like it to be heard if I can it's, let people it's tough hear it. it's not a it's not a easy position like the artists of a smaller independent nature it's it's a tough decision you've like you do you're you're auctioning off your your art your artwork yeah. for exposure yeah. and you, you feel like you're selling selling your soul to the devil in a way but um but no, i think for no money it's, it's so the important thing for li- yeah. any listeners <laughs> funny funny the listeners though Very but that, we've, we've mentioned it before but like Bandcamp or, or any independent record store or online record sales is the way to go if you want to if you want to support treasure like the, go, get the album from from Bandcamp. i love the uh, i love the the idea of um you having to go up to your to your back room and get the CD. <laughs> yeah, um... yeah, and and, and I, I tell you, I tell you what else I got done as well at the time, and and this was just novelty, like complete novelty on my behalf. So, do you know the way? Like when I was a kid, I used to always collect. Do you know if you got stickers and mm. stuff that you'd stick on your cases? So I actually got the CD, like the 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 CD. Like as in when you physically take the CD out of the case, it's got this kind of blue uh, background and you just get the top of the head of the banjo mm-hmm. in it. But I got that made into a sticker with the hole in the middle. So uh-huh. <laughs> I've got like the CD is also a sticker. So whenever anyone gets a CD, they also get a sticker in the post as well. So they can Bonus. Put it on their I'm case. a sucker for a sticker. <laughs> my, my wife just ordered a whole oh, swag of stickers for their basketball. So when different kids will, they... So she probably got about two hundred stickers. I've got a pile in my kitchen table of about twenty stickers. And now I'm like, can I have these? And I was getting all excited. She's like, where are you going to stick them? I'm like, I, I don't know. But I was just, I just love them. 
Right. I love I love stickers. Always loved them as a kid, and always loved to get them for my banjo case. So, um, yeah, I said, ah, yeah. might as well. It's maybe so maybe because I wasn't given well. many as a kid in school. Anyway, that's that's going into the <laughs> yeah, psychology did of it. Did you not get the gold stars? Did you no, not get the gold stars? I did not. No, me neither. Me <laughs> neither. I didn't get any gold stars. Yeah. I was lucky maybe if I got one of the coloured ones, a blue one or a red one. But If we keep going uh, like this, I'll no... be making banjo <laughs> jokes. <laughs> right. I, um, I well, and then the other thing I just wanted to ask for listeners that would like to maybe hit you up for some lessons, where would be the best place to get in contact with you from that perspective? Um, probably probably Facebook as well. Yeah, yeah probably Facebook. Um, so what's your, what's your just, address just if you can remember? It? Is be, it just befriend your... befriend me? Just Teresa O'Grady. Um, with a h yeah. th no, oh. you'll find me there and there's also a Teresa o'grady music page which like i'm a, i'm not very i'm probably a poor enough facebooker if you know what i mean um but i will always answer a message or get back to people well when I'll, i figure out how to get in to see it <laughs> i will link to your personal one to the music one and of course to the Bandcamp one all in the show notes for anyone listening it's down on your Thanks, app sir. at the moment Teresa. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, this guys. Been such... It's been an absolute pleasure. Oh, it's been, a, for us, it's been a pleasure. It's been brilliant. Thank you. Do you think we could have one Thank tune you. to Thanks. finish? I can, I can rustle set. something up here. <laughs> if we're would it, would it, would it matter if it was, would it matter if it was a real, no, or actually? Not another, uh, uh, oh. <laughs> Actually, no. No, do you know what? I'll play, I'll play a couple of jigs for you. I will. Um, now these are. I'll do. Um, actually, they're two jigs, kind of local enough to where I'm living here in Sligo. So one of them is called the Calavel jig, which is not that far from where we are. We're just outside Tobacurry. Um, we'd be living just on the border of Sligo in Mayo. So. Tobagori would be my nearest Sligo town and then Swinford would be my nearest Mayo town. And um, on the way to Swinford, um, as far as I know, the, the, second, the second jig I'm going to play is called, it's called Jimmy Neary's jig, or it's called, actually it's called By Golly is the name of the tune, but it was composed by Jimmy Neary, or it's associated with him, and he was a fiddle player from from the Mayo side, if you like, of where I am. So I'll do one from the side and one from the Mayo side. So uh, give these a go for you.
So Teresa O'Grady, thank you. And thank you for that image of traveling in an orange Volkswagen camper van to Ireland on the Hollyhead Ferry and scooting around Ireland, going to the Flas, going to see your rallies. What a beautiful, beautiful image. I mean, it just it just summed up a dream of, of a childhood. You know, it's really uh, so lovely. So thank you. That was mm. great. You said a really nice thing. You said that, I mean, we're, we're off mic. Anyway, what you said was that we get to live vicariously through we do, we do, we do. We live vicariously through, yes, through through these these glimpses into um, uh, periods in their lives, right? And and also through the music and through the the learning of the music and their descriptions of how they learned the music. I mean, I feel like I, I sort of inhabit this completely. space that, that that where they are when they're talking about yeah. it. I get so sucked in, you know. It's like I it's like I kind of slipped down a tunnel into this. And when this, we started doing this, this house project, in Luton, yeah, with, with the kids, with all those kids. But when we started doing this, I, I'm sure it was in there. It just wasn't top top of mind, but it was a way of getting closer to the music vicariously through other people right that was in there but it wasn't i didn't realize how far up it actually should have been in my drive because week in week out uh we'll we'll hear a story and it just confirms everything that i hoped that it would be and then i actually feel like i've had some of that experience and collectively like it's a year in i kind of feel like yeah i've done heaps and then i take a step back and go no you've just listened to <laughs> loads of people talk but i don't care it's still what's, what's a memory wait, was that was that my life or was that somebody else's it's life? very philosophical but what yeah. is a memory if, it, if it's a memory and if you have it well what is what is the um what is the value of um i mean i mean the worth the real worth of listening to someone like Teresa tell her story if it's not for the fact that it it creates this channel that through which you can really connect with what she experienced and hopefully a bit in return as well you know um so yeah thank you Teresa yeah thank you so much Teresa I'm just going to send people towards your website again so if you're looking for lessons and to follow Teresa on Facebook and those kind of places to find out where she's going to be lessons being the most important thing like we're in the middle of a pandemic this is the time if you're anywhere else in the world even if you're in ireland to reach out to a teacher that you never would have thought you could get lessons from because everyone's online now zoom um zoom lessons are the thing right getting a getting a, getting a banjo lesson from Teresa or grady is like it's like you know contacting chick korea and saying look can you give, can you give me a, a wee a wee go on the piano i have to I but mean, it's doable that's it's, the brilliant it's incredible yeah. it's an it's amazing sort of testimony to the to a sort of democratic impulse mm-hmm. in in this music right and and where it sits where the music sits with the top players and then people like us who are just uh, hackers you yeah. know and it's, the other thing too players are the reality is players are out of majority of their income at the minute yeah players so play they're not playing chance, at the minute if you have a chance to support them and to you know, invest in yourself by learning. Treat yourself. Get, get in there. So yeah. Teresa O'Grady, Teresa with a T-H. Yeah, so Teresa O'Grady music on Facebook. If you're looking to buy the album, it's TeresaO'Grady.Bandcamp.com. As always, links in the show notes. And then finally, but not lastly, hit subscribe. Make sure you hit that subscribe because that means the content gets delivered each week and Facebook and not Facebook, iTunes and all those other places know that we're class acts. And then last, lastly is... Thank, Thank you, you to, to our patron saints. Absolutely. Your halos are on the way as we speak through the ether 
um, and if you want to be part of that celestial body part of the congregation get to patreon.com forward slash blarney pilgrims and yeah your reward will be great in heaven see you next week good luck hi my name is Jekyll please become a good subscriber to the podcast thank you